0: Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com.
1: Hello, Craig McConnell here, and it's my pleasure to introduce the third of a series of four segments of an interview John Eldridge and I did with Michael Kusick. Michael heads up a ministry, Restoring the Soul. Find out more about his ministry and what they're up to at restoringthesoul.com. Michael's a good friend and ally. And the course of the interview just seemed to John and I that, uh, wow, Michael's going to post this and we'd love to just share this interview with some of our allies and friends as well. So this is the third topic we covered in this four-part interview. This topic is on the Christian life is a battle. It's a war. We have an enemy, yet so many of us live as though we have none.
2: John, I heard you give a message at the National Pastors Convention. I think it was in 07, and you talked to a group of Christian leaders, and somewhere in your talk, you made the statement that we know we have an enemy, but we don't live as if we do. Right. <laughs> Tell me about that.
0: Well, how many how many pastors do you know, let alone normal lay people, that pray, mm. pray out loud, as Jesus did in the wilderness, directly against the enemy on a regular basis? Like it's just a normal part of their life. Mm. My experience has been very few. And unfortunately, when you don't take the presence of the enemy seriously— then you leave – you just leave the, you know, him free to wreak havoc in your life, and you end up having to blame someone for it. And you either – usually end up blaming yourself or others, but mostly God. We end up blaming God for that. <clears throat> James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You're commanded to resist. But my son was in a Bible class in uh, in middle school, a Christian school. And the, and the teacher of the Bible class explained to him, it's not our job to resist the devil. Mm-hmm. That's God's job. Well, that's unbiblical. Mm-hmm. But not only is it unbiblical, it is very, very dangerous to teach people that. there is a There is a staggering passivity that has the church right now. I mean, it frustrates ministers, priests. Um, people who are trying to bring you know, their people along in, in life with God. It's very frustrating. There is this profound passivity within the church. And part of the reason why is we've told them, you don't have to resist evil. There's nothing active for you to do in that arena. Um, but I'm telling you, <laughs> James 4, 7, no resist, no flee. Uh, the enemy doesn't just walk away because you choose not to believe in him. He just gets to have a field day with you. And um, we just have, at this point, far too many years of experience and far too many stories to tell of, of people who could not find freedom, could not hear from God, could not experience the intimacy with God, could not attain a genuine holiness, an improvement of character, a better marriage or whatever, without learning to shut down the spiritual warfare in their life.
2: Now, let me play, no pun intended, but devil's advocate just for a minute, because I know that there's people that are going to be listening to this message saying, oh, yeah, there's another person who's just blaming it on the devil. You're not saying that people sin because of the devil or that if you just cast out a demon, that the person that wrestle or... avoid temptation or anything like that well no,
0: you go back to ephesians 4 where paul's warning us he says actually the way you mishandle things anger is the example in ephesians 4 but it's i mean anger is not some special sin in the bible right it gives the devil an opportunity in other words issues of character issues of personal holiness and integrity issues of family character church character, you know, the character of an entire organization, the holiness of an organization are deeply, deeply connected to these issues. And when Adam fell, that's how he abdicated you know, authority to the evil one. It was mm-hmm. through sin that the enemy gained, you know, the, the uh, lordship, small l of the earth. Um, you know, which is why First John 5 he says, now the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So um, no, we're not saying that other issues like repentance volition and a godly life are not or somehow set aside if you just learn how to deal with demons on the other hand scripture is filled with admonitions for us to take the enemy seriously for example in 1 peter 5 peter says be on your guard your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, again, he's writing to Christians. This is a letter written to Christians, not to pagans. He says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that your brethren around the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. So Peter is first assuming that this is normal. It's all around the world. All your brothers undergo spiritual attack. He's assuming that it can be very, very damaging. But he's also commanding us to resist, so again, James four, seven, first Peter, five, eight, and nine, you are commanded to resist to deal with this, so and again this isn 't new you you read some of the you know, requirements uh, for baptism in Mm, in early church practice. Renounce the devil. Oh, my goodness. It was all, you know, renounce the covenants that you've given to the evil one, and and deliverance in some cases was absolutely essential for for them before they could even be baptized, you know, Mm. in the early church. So they took it very seriously. Michael, this came in, this aversion to taking the spiritual realm seriously, to taking demonic forces seriously in dealing with them. This came in with the Enlightenment. This was not something that the church really had to wrestle with in terms of is it true or false, is it, you know, real or, or overblown, until the Enlightenment. The Age of Reason in the West threw a blanket over the spiritual realm, and it did great damage to the gospel, which is for another podcast. But what we did is we moved to a gospel of the mind. Hmm. It's just teaching— It's just uh, scripture memorization. It's just um, intellectual content. But my goodness, I mean, you, you know, go to Africa, go to Colombia, right? Go to India. I mean, the church there is quite aware that you have to deal with demonic forces. It's not central. It's not the point. But the point is, if you don't deal with it, you'll find it very difficult to live the Christian life.
1: You know what was startling to me was in seminary. One of the f- systematic theologies that we we used was three volumes and probably fifteen hundred pages, and I think there were like eight pages on on the devil. Wow. And it, it's just remarkable to me. Um, who was it, John? You've said this before. Don't let your reaction. Be the determinative factor in establishing your theology. Yes,
0: yes. I was Schaefer years ago, warning the church: don't let a reaction to mistakes. Yes, people making excesses of things. You know, some people do do goofy things with spiritual warfare, but people do goofy things with food. I mean, the people do goofy things with cars. They do goofy things with all sorts of stuff. It doesn't. We don't write them off as categories, right? We still love food. Most people still drive cars. You know, so don't let your Reaction to someone else's excesses shape your theology.
2: Mm. Craig, you talked about the eight pages in the big uh, systematic theology book and and recently reading through the Gospels four in a row, it's unbelievable to see the sheer amount of time Jesus spends dealing with the demonic and casting out demons as part of the healing journey. Just so obvious, and yet we resist that somehow.
0: Well, again, because of the age of reason. I mean, the, the way we think as Westerners, you know, is really written this off as a category, but you don't find that in in developing countries.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking out loud, but as I find myself so often apologizing in my ministry sometimes to people that are not familiar with this, you know, having to say, well, this is a balanced approach. This is not really over the edge. And, and that's just strange right. that we need to do that. Would right. it be fair to say that warfare uh, it should be a normative part of our discipleship and walking with
0: God. Well, first off, you have to understand that warfare is the backdrop of the Bible. The entire Old Testament and new is framed by an understanding that we are in a great battle of good and evil, that that's, that's normative. you know. So the Exodus, for example, God goes to war to set his people free, inheriting the promised land. They have to fight. To inherit the Promised Land, David goes to war. Gideon goes to war. Samson goes to war. The Judges go to war. The Prophets go to war. I mean, it's this is very, very normative in Scripture, and it's the backdrop. Most people think it stops with the New Testament. It doesn't. It actually, as you said, Jesus is kicking out demons, dealing with the evil one quite frequently in the New Testament. And images of battle. Paul saying to Timothy, "Don't live like a civilian. Live like a soldier. Or have the mindset of a good soldier of Christ." Well, what are you fighting? <laughs> as this soldier of Christ. Unfortunately, what we end up doing is we end up fighting each other. But if, you know, Ephesians 6 says, no, 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 you don't wrestle with flesh and yeah. blood. It's absolutely normative. There's nothing like a good, healthy experience of freedom for you to realize how helpful this can be. So just take one category. The enemy is trying to get you to make agreements with him all the time about your wife, about your ministry, about yourself, about God, and if you just begin to become aware of and praying and asking God to reveal to you, what are the agreements I am making with my enemy? Because as you begin to break those agreements – he's a liar, father of lies – but he tries to get us to believe those, and many of them are rooted in our childhood wounds. I'm a failure. I'll never be loved. Don't ever trust anyone again, things like that. Um, As you begin to break those agreements – and you begin to experience the freedom that you can have, you'll realize not only is this normative, but it is so helpful, for heaven's sakes. It's not bizarre. It's not wacky. It's just immensely helpful.
2: So I'm a little slow. The agreements are a, a place where when we agree with the lie as opposed to the truth of God and Scripture, yes, that exactly. becomes a landing pad, so to speak, for the enemy. Oh, he,
0: he uses it like mm-hmm. a field day. And the, these agreements, some of them are very, very deep and very historic in our lives. Um, an agreement, I was trying to counsel a couple who were headed to divorce. This man explained to me that uh, he had married the wrong person. They'd been married for 17 years. And uh, for most of that marriage, he was pretty checked out. And I I was trying to discern why he came to that conclusion. I I said, how do you know that you married the wrong person? He said, well, God told me. Really? God told you? Mm -hmm. When? On my honeymoon. He had actually heard a voice in his head on his honeymoon. He got into an awkward marriage. They didn't know each other real well. They get on the honeymoon. Things present themselves, as happens with every couple. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not unusual. You know, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt crept in. And in that emotionally vulnerable moment, the evil one was there with a suggestion. And the suggestion went like this. You married the wrong person. Now, he made a deep agreement with that, meaning internally he gave way to that idea. Yes, that's true. I buy that. I swallow that. I go with that. I make an agreement with that. It defined 17 years of marriage, and they ended up divorcing. So these things are very, very powerful, very defining in our life.
2: John, can you give me an example uh, like almost praying through what that would look like to break an agreement.
0: Well, I'll tell you what would be very, very helpful to begin with is to ask God to reveal first, reveal to you the agreements that you are making with the enemy. And I need to do this on a fairly regular basis. It's just kind of part of my devotional time. Um, I'm not on a witch hunt. I'm not constantly looking for this. But, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Show me the agreements that I've made with the enemy. And then as an agreement presents itself, God will either remind me of something that I, what do you say to yourself every time you blow it? You know, there are things that you say to yourself or what do you say to yourself when when your spouse disappoints you? There are things internally that you're making agreements with. Now in my marriage, one of the recognitions I came to was, it's too much work. Hmm. That was a deep agreement yeah. for me in my marriage. It's just too much work. I'm not checked out. I'm not having an affair. But I'm just not, I'm not giving it 100% either. I'm kind of playing it safe. And so what it looks like is Heavenly Father, forgive me for giving place to this in my life, I reject this lie. I reject this agreement, and it really is helpful to do it out loud. I break agreement with "My marriage is too much work," or "I married the wrong person," mm-hmm. or "I will never be loved," or you know deep agreements. My father was an alcoholic and, and I was abandoned around the age of thirteen, and I made a very deep agreement having been deeply wounded by my father. I made an agreement that went like this. I'm on my own. I'm on my own in the world. It's absolutely defined my life for 40 years. And coming to the place where I had to say that is not true. Jesus said he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I'm not alone. I never have been alone. But I had to break with it. This is where God honors our will. He honors our ability to make choices and, and to choose you know, truth over over lie and good over evil. And so I break agreement with I'm on my own. I reject it, renounce it. And then Ephesians 4, and I reject every stronghold, every foothold that I've given the enemy in my life because of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if it's a quick passing agreement, that hits you in the grocery store, you can usually shut it down with one prayer. If it's a deep historic thing, you may have to pray through this a couple times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not suggesting a quick kind of boit, you know, and it's all over. But if you stay with that and you recognize these agreements, it's just amazing the the fog that you live under that you don't have to. You just you would be astounded. Mm. And here's another one. God doesn't speak to me. Well, if you make an agreement that God doesn't speak to you, guess what your experience is going to be? <clears throat> not going to hear God. Exactly. God doesn't speak to me. You know, so you've got to be really, really careful, you know, not to give place to these things in your heart and in your life. And again, they're usually connected to, to wounds, disappointments. Yeah. You
1: know. yeah. Well, that was our third segment of this four part interview Michael Kusick did with John Eldridge and I. And hope you come back for the fourth part. And uh, let me invite you to RansomHeart.com in that invitation is the hope that you would find some resources and you would just hear the heart of God for you through us and what we offer. We long to be a part of what God's doing and encouraging you in your walk, your faith, your life with Christ.